0: the following message is from temple bible church for more information about the church and its ministries visit www.templebiblechurch.org all right we're so happy that you guys are with us today whether it's in person or online uh we're looking at first corinthians 14 this morning continuing our study in this great book uh that paul wrote and uh, It's kind of an interesting observation I made. Uh, Chase spoke with us last week about 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, and it was kind of interesting that the man who creates the preaching schedule um, got to do that passage, and then I get to speak on tongues and prophecy. So... Uh, When you see Chase out in the lobby, just tell him um, that I appreciate it. But uh, no, for real though, it's uh, actually something that I haven't spoken a lot about, so it was a great area of growth for me over the last few weeks to get into this passage and really try to understand uh, what Paul is saying when it comes to uh, tongues and uh, issues with prophetic problems they were having in the church of Corinth. So if you look at the first verse, uh, Paul uh, starts out with a connection to chapter 13. And the first two words, if you look at that verse, are what? Pursue love. And so he just finishes in that chapter 13 all about love and how it affects the body of Christ. And here's his first command in chapter 14, uh, which, of course, he didn't make the chapter division, so he's just making, following this up from 13. It's pursue Love. So I was thinking about pursue love and really looking up what does that even mean. Uh, when I looked up the original language in Greek, it, it says to follow the way of. To follow the way of love. And so the illustration that popped right into my head was an interesting one. Uh, I think you can see an example of it on the screen here. Uh, there's a picture. And uh, this is me after uh, attempting to do an old man thing uh, competing with young people at Pine Cove. Uh, It was a parent versus staff basketball game. And uh, in that basketball game, all I did uh, was simply step into a half court pass and uh, connected beautifully, I must say, with the pass. Uh, Chris Childs scored the bucket, but what wasn't beautiful about it was what it did to my knee. Uh, I've heard a little bit of a pop, but uh, as, again, as somebody who thinks maybe they're better than they really are at things, uh, I decided, well, let's go ahead and go back in the game and see how that works out. And uh, so I was hopping around, realized quickly I couldn't do that. Anyway, long story short, the MRI came back with a uh, partially torn meniscus partially tore patella, a ruptured ACL, and when the ACL ruptured, it snapped my kneecap. Uh, so it was a wonderful experience. Uh, and on top of all that, you know, you got all this rehab, and I couldn't afford, uh, a, you know, rehab specialists, so I had my buddy, my little son at the time, uh, three years old at the time, Noah, uh, he just jumped in on the action. And uh, TJ did a wonderful job, you have to tell him his artwork is amazing, except... He purposely put a Lakers jersey on me when he knows I don't like them and I'd much rather have a Julius Irving jersey on. But uh, let's get back to the reason I have this picture up here Uh, is uh, Noah, as a little three-year-old boy, he was just basically following the way of whatever I was doing. I was in there trying to get better, trying to do my little exercises and bending my knee and here he comes just laying down next to me lifting his leg. And he's just following the way of his dad, didn't know what his dad was doing, but he's just doing it. And many of you have probably experienced that with a sibling or with a kid or a grandkid where you're just doing something, you turn around and there they are. They're like your shadow. And some have been caught doing things they probably shouldn't because they've seen their kid copy them as well. Unfortunately, I have too. But the reality is this, it gives us a great example of what Paul's trying to say. Follow the way of love. Just like you would follow your, your parent or whatever when you're a little kid in that same way, and that same, even more devotion is to pursue love, meaning follow the way of love. Well, if he challenges us to pursue love, who is the definition of love? The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ, the definition of sacrificial love is who we are calling, uh, Paul is calling us to pursue. To pursue love. So this is how he starts this whole passage where he gets into tongues and prophecies because they were having issues obviously with doing things in love. And so Paul's trying to correct their actions here So Before we get too deep into the passage, I think it's important for us to address some errors of the Spirit's work in our lives that existed in the Corinthian church and might exist maybe in your own life. I know I've seen them in my life before, and J.I. Packer puts it this way. He says, the Spirit's work tends to be spoken of man-centeredly, as if God's power is something made available for us to switch on and use by a technique of thought and will, Also, the idea gets around that God's power works in us automatically, so as far as we let it do so, so that in effect we regulate it by the degree of our consecration and faith at any one time. What he's basically saying is we have set ourselves up as believers to be able to have some kind of off-on valve for the spirit, so to speak, That somehow we think we can control God and we can control the spirit and how he moves and we let him do work in us and then other times we kind of seal it off and say, no God, I don't want to do that. And somehow we've decided that we're in control of what the spirit is doing versus what God wants in our lives and oftentimes the spirit is calling us to do tough things, difficult things, Hard things, painful things. And if we have this attitude where we can turn it off and on, it gives us this frustrated, bitter, and faithless experience as a Christian because we put ourselves in charge of the Spirit versus letting God work through us. So it's a danger to be led that way and to pursue gifts that way as well. So in chapter 14, Paul deals with tongues and prophecy. So he first talks about tongues, if you look at verse two, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So it's kind of an interesting statement, and so I think it's important for us to distinguish. There's In scripture, there's two sets of tongues referred to, First, it's this part where it's a mystery of the Spirit. Uh, In Romans 8, the Bible talks about where the Spirit speaks in groanings that cannot be uttered. So this is a personal uh, relationship between you and God, and maybe some of you, even in your own time with God, have experienced things where you're so deep in prayer that that's just what happens, and it's not even really audible, but it's just something that's happening between you and God that's just an interesting experience, and many probably haven't had that, but some of you have. And that's one aspect of tongues. But then the second one that's more often referred to in, spri- in Scripture is specific languages. And so later on in the passage, you'll see where he gets into specific languages. Acts 2, it tells the story of this. And the Spirit's coming uh, to the people in Pentecost. They were all gathered together, and the church was forming in, in the beginning of Acts, and you see the Spirit descend on the people. And it's important for us to note that this was a reversal of Babel back in the Old Testament where the Tower of Babel took place and people were divided into different languages And so here the Spirit is actually bringing people back together and showing the unity that the Spirit can bring in the gospel. And in Acts 2, if you look at verse 5 through 8, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So even here in this passage you have tongues being spoken, but they were actually specific languages being spoken, and it was just blowing people's minds because they were understanding what it would be like us in here, like especially like if I go to Rwanda, a difficult thing to understand that language. It'd be like for me walking in there and understanding every word they said without an interpreter. And this is what's happening in Acts two. So Paul addresses a problem within the church concerning speaking in tongues. Number one, there were people speaking in tongues with no interpreter. So they're talking and they're speaking in another language, but no one has any clue what's being said, and it was confusing and frustrating. This practice was, was becoming a selfish one, not being used for its primary original intent. Basically what was happening is they were just trying to draw attention to themselves, they were speaking in other languages or maybe their own made up language, whatever it was. There was no interpreter, but it was drawing attention to themselves. As Chase said last week, it was this idea that somehow speaking in tongues made you uh, a super Christian, made you uh, really a believer if you actually did this. And so they were all trying to do it, drawing attention to themselves. And it also created an individualistic mindset in the church. You see, most of these people were new believers. This is the church of Corinth, they're coming out of pagan practices. And so, these people who are new believers, they're taking some of these pagan practices that they may have followed even back then with uh, chantings and different things like that that they would memorize, and they're taking that and just kind of merging it in with their Christian faith and coming out with different things that were basically just drawing attention to themselves and creating confusion. It's important for us to understand in this passage the primary goal of spiritual gifts. Ephesians chapter four, verse 12 says this, that these, Paul states, these spiritual gifts are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. And even Paul says it here in verse three, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So this Statement by Paul helps us see first early on that prophecy, as we move into that section, the prophecy that's referred to here is not Old Testament prophecy. You are not ordained by God to speak some kind of judgment on a group of people. You know, if, if it was for me, it would be like God's judgment growing up in the Philadelphia area and I picked one little section and went to them and said, God has told me to say something to you. This isn't the prophecy we're talking about. This is not the same prophecy because prophecy back then, if you really look into it, was often things nobody wanted to hear. It was judgment. It's Jonah saying God's going to destroy this city. But here, Paul's saying, no, this is actually used for upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So when it's important to note that when a spiritual gift is being used to draw attention to ourselves or build ourselves up, we are allowing it to be hijacked by our sinful nature. There's opportunity we have to take a gift that we have, uh, maybe teaching or serving or uh, speaking in tongues or, or prophecy or whatever it might be, exhortation, all these things, and we can take this gift and make it about ourselves and prop ourselves up or even force this gift to really draw attention to ourselves. Uh, J.R. Packer, Packer says it this way in how Paul calls out the Corinthian people. He says, they despised fellow worshipers and visiting preachers who struck them as less gifted than themselves and tried to outdo one another in showing off their gifts whenever the church met. They were valuing gifts and freedom above righteousness, love, and service. Valuing it over the things that were most important. This goes along with the same immaturity in the Corinthian believers that we can see in 1 Corinthians 11. Remember what they were doing with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, they were uh, the rich people were getting together and eating and leaving the poor out who didn't have anything to eat and they were acting in an immature way and remembering the Lord's Supper. And then if you look at chapter 13 from last week, Paul's calling them out because their minds were immature. He like just (laughs) threw them under the bus and basically said, look, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, right? I acted like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And he's calling them out in their immaturity to say, look, grow up. Grow up spiritually, but also grow up in understanding the gifts that have been given to you. And so then he moves on in verse five. He says, "I I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one Who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. So let's pause for a moment and get a little deeper into prophesy or prophecy. When I first read this passage and realized I was going to be up here doing this, uh, I I knew that I was going to have to do a lot of research and figure some things out. And first of all, I wanted to be able to make this word um, kind of tie it in with teaching and preaching. That's what a lot of people do, they'll just lump it in with what I'm doing right now from the stage and say, well, that's, that's part of it. But it, it really allows us, doesn't allow us to see it for what it really is and what it means if we do that, and it really would force me to, as Chase mentioned last week, do s- gymnastics with the text, trying to make it say something that it really doesn't say. So I think uh, it's important to see here what Paul is talking about when he refers to the gift of prophecy. First of all, as we mentioned, it's important to be clear, it's not equivalent to Old Testament prophecy authored by God himself. It's not infallible, it's not authoritative, and it's not threatening the canon of scripture. Secondly, the prophecy referred to here would fall under what Charles Spurgeon mentioned, a urging of the spirit. An impression of the spirit is what we're really more getting at here when we talk about prophecy. So to be clear, it cancels out some things. It cancels out people predicting the second coming of Christ and putting a date on it. It cancels out the conspiracy theories like uh, the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast. It cancels that out. It cancels out maybe even little things like how many cheeseburgers I might eat at small group tonight if you were gonna foretell that as well. It's 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 not these type of things like you've got some crystal ball where you're gonna be able to tell somebody something about themselves in in a way that is just like predicting the future. So let's get that straight. Prophecy here is more talking about where you are able to, by the Spirit, have an impression and an urging to speak a word to somebody. Now, sometimes that word is something you shouldn't know about them. Spurgeon, even in his sermon, he talks about uh, one time he's speaking and he he saw a kid over here with gloves on and he called the kid out in the middle of the service. I'm going to call any of you out because I don't feel that right now. But he called this kid out and said, you need to return those gloves you stole from your employer. After the service, this kid comes up to him and and meets with him and says, I've never stolen anything from my boss before. I'm gonna return it. Please don't tell my mom. But in that moment, it was just like, bam. He just calls the dude out. Now, it may not be that extreme. It may not be that extravagant as Spurgeon experienced, but it is an impression and urging of the spirit. Uh, John Bloom, in his, uh, his article, should you earnestly desire to prophesy. He's the co-founder of Desiring God. He says it helps us to understand the difference between Old Testament and this prophecy is a few things. He says Paul encourages all believers to earnestly desire this gift without any warning to those who would falsely speak what others would receive as God's infallible word. So that first one is he just tells them to desire it without any further instruction to say, but you're not a prophet like the Old Testament. He doesn't clarify that. So he would if he's saying, well, you're elevated here. And then he even gives in verse 24 and 25 at the end of our passage, he gives a hypothetical example. And he says here in verse 24, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secret of his heart are are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Do you see anything drawing attention to the prophet? In that moment when someone says a word of prophecy to someone, calling them out, pushing them a certain way, encouraging them, the response, if, you, if it really is prophecy, the response is, is contrition, the response is bowing before God and recognizing God as the author. God is the one who wants to change their life and it points to the validity of the Christian gospel. It's also important to note though that Paul asserted uh, his apostolic authority over this prophecy. Paul wouldn't assert his apostolic authority over Isaiah, over Malachi, over these prophets from the Old Testament, but in this instance he's saying uh, there's a, a passage that talks about even, we're gonna get into later in verse 29, a verse that talks about weighing these prophecies. Seeing if they're true, seeing if they're consistent, so it wasn't this one statement and it's all infallible. Bloom sums it up with this quote, these among other reasons lead me to believe that the New Testament gift of prophecy is spirit prompted yet partially excuse me—partially infallibly reported revelation that must always be subordinate to apostolic doctrinal authority, which for us today is the Bible. If you ever hear someone saying, I got a prophecy, I got a word for you, if it doesn't line up with scripture, then you can easily call them a false prophet. And it's okay if you want to call that to their face because God may want you to do that. Maybe you can prophesy back to them. You're a false prophet. If it doesn't line up with scripture, it's false prophecy. So if you hear things on YouTube and you watch things here and on this news channel and that news channel and you gather it all in and make your assumptions, right? Right? Without basing it on scripture, you're a false prophet. You must base what you're saying on scripture. It must come from the word of God. And it's very, very important because we can get off on things that are crazy and I don't have time to get into it, but you know what I'm talking about. So. In verse 6 through 19, he kind of jumps back into tongues. He went to prophecy for a little bit, and then 6 through 19, he goes into tongues. We can read that there in verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with you yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. Verse 10, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in what? Building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So he goes into this frustration that can take place. Because they were speaking in tongues, but not interpreting and nobody knowing what they're saying, there was no way for them to agree. And it was wrecking their community. It was dividing them because they couldn't understand and couldn't understand what was going on. So Tongues without interpretation are frustrating and misleading. And then he gives, I love Paul because he gives practical illustrations. Sometimes when I come to a text, I just really need people to break it down in a story or some way, practically like an illustration like this. And he, he gives the example of a harp. And I was thinking about grabbing one of these guitars earlier, and uh, they gave me warning not to touch them. Well, they did say I could touch one, but I don't know which one it is, so I'm not going to grab it. But if I got one of those guitars and just started strumming on it, I took one lesson and bailed out because my fingers just wouldn't bend the right way or maybe I don't have any patience. But if I get a guitar up here and I start strumming, you're gonna quickly please ask me to please stop. Just Stop. And because I don't know the notes, I don't know how to make it sound good, I don't know how to, make, how, how to make it flow together, but when these guys get up here, they do it and it sounds amazing. And Paul's saying tongues without an interpreter, tongues that are, are, are spoken but nobody knows what you're saying is like me getting up here leading worship with a guitar, Or sounding a a war horn and instead of me uh, getting up there and blowing that horn so that thousands could hear in the area, it's like me just blowing it it's just like this little tiny sound coming out. Who's gonna come to the battle? They can't even hear and that's the confusion that's taking place here with tongues. Verse 10 to 12, he talks about it as known languages. Phoni, the Greek word, is languages. Then you have aphanos, and when they work together, it means languages that can convey meaning by their systematic distinguish, uh, distinction of sounds. So these words coming together specifically talk about audible words in another language. But Paul, in v- verse 14, uses a word that's interesting unfruitful when talking about tongues being spoken without an interpreter. And It made me think of my times uh, when I go to Rwanda. I, I miss Rwanda. I can't wait to go back and all my friends there. And I've been like ten or eleven times, so I understand a little bit of the language now. But when I'm with people, I still need an interpreter. And I got all these pastors around me. We're hanging out together, and they'll be talking in their broken English, and I'll be talking to them, and we'll be talking English. But then sometimes they break off and they get back into their own language. You ever experience anything like that with somebody who speaks another language, especially a few people that are your friends and they start saying stuff and then they start laughing and I'm like these pastors I know they're making fun of me because my friends make fun of me in English so of course they're making fun of me in Kenya, Rwandan and so it's frustrating it's humorous but also frustrating that I can't speak with them and that's what Paul's saying it's unfruitful, it's really not helpful in that, that regard in the sense that they're speaking another language and nobody really knows what they're saying In verse 18, when Paul refers to speaking in tongues more than all of them, he further further illustrates that it's speaking in foreign languages. He's saying, look, and Paul does this sometimes kind of jabbing people, but he's like, look, I I speak more languages than all of you, okay? Let's get that straight. But I'd much rather speak five words that are intelligible, that are able to be heard than 10,000 in an unknown tongue. It's just frustrating. And so he just points that out just to say, look, Tongues can be tricky and it can be very frustrating to people. J.I. Packer helps us see it this way. He says, Paul's prayers for believers reveal the priority God places on the ethical over the charismatic. Christ-likeness is what matters most. In Philippians 1, 9 through 11, Paul asks that their love would abound with all knowledge and discernment so that you would preach and convince people well, heal the sick with authority, or speak in tongues with fluency. No. The foundation is so that they may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruits of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. So it's not about just displaying your gift and understanding your gift if it's about you and if it's about drawing attention to you. Again, it's about building people up, making them, helping them be blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that only comes from Jesus. He concludes by saying, my argument is that any mindset which treats the spirit's gifts as more important than its fruit is spiritually wrongheaded and needs correction. If we get consumed by the emotion of it and gets consumed by the gift itself, but we don't see the reason why we have it, which is should bear fruit in our lives, then we're backwards and we're living as hypocrites. And then he gets into this last section as we wrap up, verse 20 to 25. Paul gives the Corinthian believers a mature outlook on this discussion. He goes back again to reference uh, chapter 13, 10, 11, where he's saying, look, when I grew up, I started to say things differently when I became a man. He's challenging them to be mature in their thoughts. I don't know about you, but uh, being around uh, infants and toddlers and little kids, you get this Draw for attention, right? Maybe you can remember when you were little or maybe you have little ones, maybe some of the little ones I see in this room uh, and and you start grabbing your your parents' shirt or maybe uh, nowadays it's slapping the cell phone out of their hands, right, to get their attention and say, hey, look at me, I'm here, right? And this is what's happening. Paul's trying to help them. Look, it's not about you. It's not about drawing attention to yourself right now. It's about using your gift to glorify God and point to Jesus. In verse 21, Paul actually cites a prophecy from Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. And in this passage, if you look there in the law, it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners while I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. In that passage in Isaiah, he's saying, look, I sent prophets to you and you wouldn't listen. What makes you think people speaking in foreign languages will make you listen either? You're gonna ignore what I say. You're gonna ignore my commands either way. So the reality is you're gonna reject the prophets and you'll also reject the people speaking foreign languages in my name. And in 22 to 25, he concludes with a few thoughts on tongues and prophecies as they relate to believers and non-believers. He looked there, he says, thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a not, sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So tongues are often referred to as a sign for unbelievers, and prophecy is a sign for believers. But even unbelievers, when they come into a a building, if we were all talking in different languages, they might run out. They might be scared, and it just wouldn't, wouldn't show unity. It wouldn't show, unless someone was interpreting, it wouldn't show any kind of unity in the gospel that the Spirit brings. So this chapter encourages us to weigh prophecy, though. We can't just speak prophecy and say, this is authority. It's important for us to see this, even if you jump ahead to verse 29, just to steal a verse for next week. Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. So when we speak prophecy, when we feel these urgings of the spirit to speak to someone after studying scripture, after being in prayer, it's important for us to have a time where people can weigh these thoughts and see if they're actually true. When I read this, it made me think of my relationship with Candace. And she's actually here in this hour, so I'll try to be nice. Uh, not try to be nice, but try to say things that... Uh, Anyway, I'll just keep going. Uh, so, when I'm talking to Candice, everyone knows that knows us knows that I I carry about eighty percent of the speaking load in our relationship. I just it's just this what the Cartwright family does. You just see some of our family reunions and nobody's listening, everyone's talking. So. What's good about our relationship is that I can say things after a long day and just unload on lots of different things and she nods politely and kind of you know, takes it all in. But then a lot of times she's weighing this in her brain and she's so great at listening that she's just taking it in weighing it and then speaks things back to me that maybe a little bit of correction or a little bit of just encouragement to think through this a little bit more maybe not be so dogmatic about certain things. And that's kind of the picture I see that we as believers have with one another to weigh this. And that's why community is so important. Because when we hear a word from somebody, it's important for all of us to be able to consider it and to maybe chuck it <laughs> if it has to be chucked because it doesn't Align with scripture. But there's also things that we need to really take into account. And so, as we wrap it up, it's important for us to see that prophecy, it must come from a place of humility and it must be done in community. When we feel an urging of the spirit, it's not just meant to be an individual thing, it's supposed to be done in community, which goes with one of our main core values here, biblical community, being able to speak openly with one another. This isn't a dogmatic statement. I have a word from the Lord and it's final. Don't even tell me anything else. That's not prophecy. That's not biblical prophecy. It's a willingness to be humble and say, I may be wrong here, but this is what I feel the Spirit is leading me to say right now. Prophecy has the opportunity to attach relevance and application to what is heard in Scripture. So the gift of prophecy, it's not random. One way to truly test and weigh if you or someone is speaking true prophecy is to ask this question. Does it sound like a testimony of Jesus? Does what somebody's saying sound like something Jesus would say? That doesn't mean that it has to be, you know, all nice and good. Jesus said some pretty, pretty uh, forward things some pretty, you know, in-your-face things. So you don't just cut them off because they're calling you out. That's not Jesus. No, Jesus actually called people out too. And sometimes in pretty in-your-face ways. But Revelation 19, 9, and 10 sums it up in a great way. It says, uh, John is saying here, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. Notice that same response in verse 24 and 25. I fell down to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God. Listen to this last statement. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This isn't a rogue understanding that you have that nobody else has, but instead it's the testimony of Jesus that someone needs to hear in their life at that moment. So practically speaking, it's like maybe just an example. I'll just use Mark because he's behind me right now plugging his guitar in. So you got Mark, he's in a small group. I didn't do this last hour, sorry Mark. But he's in a small group and he has the opportunity, they're studying the word together, they're praying together and they're all gathered together, him and TJ and wives and others. And then God, even during the prayer, is just pushing him to say something whether it's to a specific person, maybe calling TJ out for something in front in the community, or in general saying, I really feel the Spirit pushing me to say this and I, I just need to say it. In those moments, that can be prophecy. And sometimes we get scared of this word. I know I did growing up. What in the world, prophecy? I'm not a prophet. But when it's used here, it's used for us when we feel an urging and so often, I don't know if you're like me, but so often I feel this urging from the spirit to say something, I feel even something specific, but I'm like, ah, they already know. Maybe someone else has already told them this, right? And I kind of suppress the spirit and I suppress the idea that God may be giving me a word to say. Brothers and sisters, this is what community is about. When the Spirit urges us and we don't speak, we're handicapping our community. And instead of just meeting as a small group and, and going together, going through the motions, how was your day? Well, how was yours? How was your week? Well, I'm struggling because I had a flat tire. And the flat tire's not bad, don't get me wrong, but in small groups, that's, we just get on the surface and we stay there when oftentimes God's calling us to something deeper, something that's painful, something that pushes us, and oftentimes it's prophecy and speaking words of truth. So my encouragement to you today is to pursue love by pursuing Jesus and then pursue these gifts that God's given you. Earnestly desire these and let them be weighed. Don't be arrogant. But let them be weighed against Scripture and against other brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the time and your word, Lord. Uh, this passage is one that is difficult for our culture. Other cultures may be able to identify with this better, um, maybe even other de- denominations. But for us, being a Bible church, we often um, shy away from this topic, Lord but I think it's important for us to address, it's important for us to consider. Lord, I pray for anybody in this room or at home that may not know what it means to pursue love because they don't know you. I pray that they understand that you love them with an everlasting love, a grace that goes beyond anything they deserve, a mercy that is there in time of need. I pray that they'll understand that all their sins are covered by your blood that they can trust in you even now. For those of us who are believers, who are hearing this, maybe even for the first time or maybe hearing it put a different way, Lord, I pray that we will pursue this gift, understand if you've blessed us with it, and then speak words of truth, humbly, in community, that we will encourage one another, that we won't be handicapped spiritually because people aren't functioning in their gifts, We'll be used by you to bring the body together in unity for the sake of uh, lifting up the church, but most importantly, bringing glory to your name. Pray you bless us this week as we uh, act out our gifts. Give us understanding and wisdom. In your name we pray. Amen.